Hello and welcome to this week's Parley at the Hindu. I'm your host Shobhana K. Nair. The BJP lost its last post in South India with its defeat in the recently concluded Karnataka Assembly elections. The five southern states are ruled by five different political parties, each with its own unique ideology. The South often doesn't follow the electoral trend of the rest of the country. Whether it was the 1977 Lok Sabha elections when the Congress was swept out of the Hindi heartland but continued to hold on to its seats in the South, or the last 10 years, when the BJP at the height of its popularity has been unable to breach the southern fortress, barring Karnataka and to a small extent in Telangana. This forces one to ponder, is South India's political character different? To discuss this, we have with us today Sudha Pai, renowned political scientist whose new book, Maya Modi Azad, Dalit Politics in the Time of Hindutva is out on the stands. And Professor K.K. Kailash, who teaches at the Department of Political Science in the Hyderabad University. My first question to both of you is, in the context of the Karnataka Assembly elections, um, what is the reason for this political chasm between the North and the South? If you can explain the great uh, North-South divide. Uh, Professor Kailash, I would like you to begin. Okay, thank you. Thank you. So most often the differences between the South and the North are attributed to historical, social and economic differences between the two regions. While these elements are important and do explain a great deal, I think we often miss out on the political aspect, on the political dimension, more specifically political agency and what political actors sort of do. So political actors like political parties, I think, are not prisoners of the socio-economic configuration or circumstances. So while parties and the issues that they raise often reflect the societal demands, I think we need to keep in mind what, what political parties do. I think parties set the agenda and the terms of references, the lenses which they give us is what we see. So the language of politics in both the South and the North, I think, are distinct. The issues, the concerns, and even the articulation is very different from the North and the South. While there are differences in the South and maybe in the North between states, I think in the South, there is some degree of commonality. And I think this began during the period of the Congress dominance, where the Congress was seen as the other, that was the center. And the parties opposed to the Congress made claims that the states were being discriminated against and were not getting their due share. The Congress being a polity by party was supposedly not representing the specific interests of the state. So these parties within the state, they claimed were better equipped to sort of represent state interests compared to the Congress. So some of the political parties in the region also then added other dimensions to it. For example, regional honor, pride, culture, and other things to make a more stronger case. And they also argued that they were better protectors of regional identity and which was being lost and was not a concern of the Congress party. A third angle which political parties in the South often use is to make a call to the center to sort of relinquish certain subjects that are there in the um, concurrent list. 
So they wanted more subjects to be added to the state list and were sort of unhappy with the way in which the center was treating them on, on these various lists and centers encroachment actually. So I think this political language, which has been adopted in the South, is very much unlike in the North. Whereas in the North, you cannot actually use this language because of the say, relative homogeneity of the North in terms of its language, culture, history, etc. And it does not allow for them to actually make a call for being different. It cannot manufacture this difference. Whereas in the South, it is easy to do so. And therefore, we see that the political language in the North is very different from that of the South. Huh. Ma'am, would you like to come in also while you're uh, answering this question? I would like uh, you to also talk about uh, uh, what Professor Kalash said, that difference in the political language. Uh, one thing that has been uh, said during uh, post-Karnataka election was that the South does not accept communal uh, politics. Uh, would you just want to elaborate on that point and the difference in the North and South on that issue? Well, I would agree with what Professor Kegar said about the difference in political language. But underlying that are certain historical differences, uh, which I think we cannot ignore, although we should not overemphasize on them. And today, economic, uh, you know, social and economic political changes which have taken place in both the South and the North are also important. There are marked differences between the North and South in terms of the emergence and impact of social movements which I think continue to affect post-independent politics. Assertion by both the backward class and the federal class has been made in North India, was made in North India compared to the South. The South experienced social movements during the colonial period around the caste question. And uh, I can just sort of mention four in Karnataka. There is the Virashaiva movement in the 12th century links to Vasheshwara. It became very popular in the present North Karnataka region. It professed an anti-Brahmin, anti-ritualistic ethics and provided a certain cultural legacy in the formation of the linguistic uh, of the Lingayat group, whose followers hailed predominantly from the lower caste and were important today also. The bulk of Lingayat saints were outcasts. The whole Virachaiva movement and its ideology provided a counterculture to orthodox Brahminical Hinduism. While the caste system did not go, did not altogether disappear among the Lingayats, its rigidity became less. And Virashaivism offered immense possibilities for the crafting of an anti-caste ideology, not all of which had been fulfilled. There was also the Bhakti movement in the 16th century, not so important, but one which recognized that any person, whatever is caste, to seek God. You have the same words like Anadakum, Purandadakum, but this did not constitute a major challenge to Brahminical Hinduism. Far more important was the non-Brahmin movement in the 19th century in the Bombay Karnataka region primarily. Um, some Sudra caste, especially the Maratha Kurubi caste group, claimed higher status in the caste hierarchy in opposition to the Brahmin caste groups. And one of the earliest ideologues of this was, of course, Jyotirao uh, Kunde, who founded the Satyakodak Samaj. Although it was a socio-cultural movement in the beginning, later it was transformed into a political movement. While the Marathas took the lead in Kolhapur and other areas of the Bombay province, the Lingayats organized the non-Brahmin in, in Belgao and other districts. So it was an alliance between these two groups. However, in political terms, the most potent and well-organized non-Brahmin movement emerged in the princely state of Mysore during the first two decades of the 20th century. And here we find that it was the Lingayats 
and locally girls who are too dominant who emerged as two dominant communities uh, economically strong but somewhat educationally backward who opposed uh, were able to much more strongly oppose the upper caste and to oppose brahminical hinduism as well finally there is the ambedkarite movement in the bombay karnataka region which did affect the dalits in karnataka but no strong movement emerged so what i'm trying to say is that there are perhaps geographical limits to uh you know hindu to, uh, to what you refer to as communal mobilization because in contrast to uh, what i just said in north india there is no brahmin movement non brahmin movement dalit movements in the hindi heartland were very big geographically scattered they didn't come together into any one strong movement and the impact of ambedkar was very big um You see, if you look at the United Provinces, the UP Scheduled Caste Federation was formed only in the 1940s and disappeared soon after independence. The Republican Party of India was strong in the 1960s, but due to the presence of a dominant Congress party which mobilized the Scheduled Caste, before it could spread from the western districts, it disappeared. And it's only after the decline of the Congress and considerable democratization and liberalization of politics had taken place that you know other parties that we have seen strong. Uh, so we find that there are these uh, major differences uh, between the two, and such uh, as amenable to Hindu mobilization, and they are less uh, amenable, I would say, to communal mobilization and polarization. Although having said that, uh, if I may go on and look at uh, some of the uh, economic differences between the north and the south. Uh, Ma'am, we'll come to that. Let's, let's uh, take that in the next question. Okay. Uh, that is actually the next thing that I want to understand. That uh, given the uh, the difference in the levels of prosperity in in South and North, uh, the kind of uh, social welfare schemes, the two, the dif- the the absolute chasm between the two in terms of overall well being of. Uh, uh, people and the economic model how much does that contribute to the political differences in the two uh, professor kalash why don't you come in and then uh, ma'am you do i just um, add that uh, something a little more on the moment before we move to the economy because i think the both are sort of connected so professor pai just mentioned that the, the, the south had a longer history of social movements um, compared to the north and i think this is very important in the sense that i think it has given groups and interest in the south uh, a great deal of autonomy compared to that of the north so what has happened is this long history of movement has sort of um, allowed them to sort of make bargains and they are also courted by political parties so backward class movement or the dalit movement etc are sort of courted and accommodated within mainstream political parties whereas in the north what has happened is that since we do not have a movement Uh, and it is often political parties which have taken up issues and concerns so there is no sort of concerted mobilization over particular interests so i think we need to make a distinction between say electoral mobilization and political mobilization um, in the south we had movements first and then electoral politics whereas in the north it's primarily electoral 
so consequently what you see is groups are tied to particular political parties and this makes them very difficult to for them to actually negotiate when other political parties sort of come in and it's almost uh, all or nothing scenario so if a particular caste based political party comes to power then that caste sort of benefits whereas some other party comes the benefits are sort of less now this then i think goes on to the role that politics plays in the economy because when you see that in the um, let's say post independence or till the 1960s or so there's actually not much difference between the two regions the south and the north the states were almost at similar levels of economic growth you look at per capita income you look at um, in terms of where they stand they are almost i think middle and bottom level uh, both these north and the south it is in the 80s that the transformation takes place between the two regions and they begin to look very much unlike each other and i think this difference in the 80s has to do with the politics in the region because the politics has determined the economic strategies in um, whether it comes to growth or in terms of redistribution now if i were to just make one comparison i could think that uh, in the south what we see is there are i think uh, lower or in, to a lesser degree in terms of short term redistributive strategies and there's a more focus on say long term poverty alleviation investment in terms of in in health or in terms of education etc which i think helps push families um out of poverty or families from indigent situations in the long run i think this is much better whereas in the north given the way in which politics is structured i think the policies are also tailored in such a way that it doesn't help people break out of situations that they find themselves in so i think this also then is impacts on the politics in another way in, in terms of because of the economic growth that has taken place in southern states and given that the age pyramid looks very different in the south as compared to the north the south is comparatively less populous they now start have started getting a very smaller share in uh, taxes from the center and they seem to be sort of it appears as if they are being punished for certain uh, programs that they have succeeded in now with the coming of the gst this i think has been a sort of a double whammy it sort of drastically reduced the financial freedom that states um, have had and the south i think has been majorly affected by this while the idea that it is uh, sort of bringing forward one unique one common market and sort of unifying the country etc i think it has reduced the scope for the southern states and i think this is going to have a greater like we're going to see this more becoming more politically charged given that they've always had this difference between the north and the south so i think the economic dimension will play a major role in the coming years i think there are certain economic differences with dates from the colonial period which have also impacted on the way in which politics has unfolded in the north and in the south uh, during the colonial period a lot of south india underwent much economic transformation you have the princely states of mysore and travancore which took interest in education and supported progressive movements there was british investment in the madras and then the bombay presidency um you know ports harbors railways railway lines education uh, recruitment into the army textile mills etc whereas in the north by the time the british spread into the hindi uh, heartland 
the golden age of colonialism was somewhat over. You see, by the time uh, the United Provinces, one of the largest, um, you know, administrative units that they had formed, by the time ours was conquered, it was virtually 1857. After the First World War, Britain was a declining power with the rise of the US, and investment in UP became much less. Only cantonment towns, leather, uh, you know, a few sugar mills, canals, a little bit of irrigation, and so on. And that too only in Western UP and in the case of Punjab. Consequently, the southern states did have something of an early start. And then it became, but the differences were not so great. But uh, you see, unlike the, uh, the Congress Party in the North, despite enjoying a dominant position after the 1980s politically, the southern states built very fast on their earlier economic position in terms of education, health, nutrition, and fertility, and helped to the lower caste, both the backward caste and federal caste. And so by the 1990s, the study shows that human development was much higher in the South and much better in the South. But having said this, if we look at Karnataka specifically in the 2000s, it ranks high in terms of education, but stands fifth with a little more than 75% uh, literacy. Uh, Kerala and Tamil Nadu are, of course, higher. But I think it's interesting to note that Gujarat stands at 78%, a little more than 78%, and Punjab and Karnataka both stand at a little more than 75%. So, you know, many other states have also improved. Karnataka's human development is above the natural average. And, but in 2019-20, it stood 11th in the country. And uh, the index did change between 1990 and 2021, um, you know, showing that there was achievement, uh, human development increased from 43% to 64.4%. Yet Karnataka is not among the states with high human development, but medium human development. Many smaller states such as Goa and Himachal Pradesh have surpassed it in many years. This is because all big states have backward regions and Karnataka is not an exception. You see, if you look at North Karnataka, it is Dakshin Kannada which has the best rates in all. North Karnataka is the worst. So from that point of view, um, you know, the uh, I mean, there are vast differences between, in economic terms, between the states uh, in the South as such, um, in terms of education, in terms of human development, and so on, particularly if you look at Kerala and Karnataka. So, um, Karnataka ranked 19th, the last among large states in the country, in the latest report by the NPIA. So, I would say that um, while historical factors are there, these economic factors also play a very important role. And um, I think this must also be kept in mind when we look at the North and the South. And um, in years to come, maybe the differences between the two would um, you know, become greater and there would be a lot of uh, political problems as such. Uh, yeah, here I would like to sort of ask you both to look into the, uh, appear into the future and uh, perhaps guide us uh, exactly where this divide is headed. Do we see this widening or do we see this this gap reducing as the northern states at some point will catch up with the economic uh, development? But will the linguistic and the cultural differences between the two sides of the country, will it still 
keep the gap nearly as much as we have right now. Uh, Professor Kalash, to begin with, you can uh, give us your opinion and followed by uh, Professor Pai. Yeah. So actually in the 90s, um, they appeared to be some sort of green shoots of social transformation taking place in the North. And there was, if you look at the literature that comes out at that point of time and even now, they say that there was hope that the uh, what was happening in the North is something that is had a, happened in the South earlier after a timeline. But if you look at it now, three decades after that, I don't, I'm not very optimistic. I don't see much headway actually being made in terms of transformation uh, if you were to look at the two regions. And one good example of this may be like, look at how the South handled, say, the COVID-19 pandemic and the North did. Okay, so look at how migrants were treated in the South as compared to those that were treated even between moving between, say, Haryana and Uttar Pradesh. They seem to be a great deal of difficulty. Now, I think the gap is not going to come down uh, close anytime soon. Because, for instance, today's Indian Express, for instance, reports that um, about students and their choice of subjects. So you look at the states of Tamil Nadu, Telangana, Andhra Pradesh, Kerala, and Karnataka. They are more likely to choose science subjects. And only 2% of these students are likely to opt for arts. Now, I think this has long-term implications when it comes to the nature of the workforce, and it will also have an impact on the economic activity and profile of the states. Now, this, I think, cannot be bridged immediately. It's going to take a long, longer time. And I think the future is also going to, the gaps is just likely to increase in terms of the economic profile and these work profile that we are seeing. The second thing that we should also um, look at is in terms, which I mentioned slightly earlier, was in terms of the age pyramids. Like the southern states are having older population as compared to the northern states. Now, we also see that there has been economic migration, which is coming from the north to the south. And this is in terms of the search for, say, wages and things are much better off in the south as compared to the uh, north. So, both this age pyramid there is some positive thing in the sense that maybe they will be, uh, when the southern states are looking for more labor, there will be uh, people coming in from the north. If they happen to settle there, then there could be a change of profile in the long run. But in the short run, I don't see the gap between the north and the south actually uh, coming closer together. And I the uh, regarding the cultural change and the uh, the cultural dimension, I think it will take, if there is going to be any sort of change, it will not be our lifetime. It will take, uh, it, it's there in the long distant future if it has to happen. Yeah. Ma'am, uh, what do you have to say on this question? Looking forward. Well, um, I, I think um, the North-South divide in economic terms is worsening. And I would point out that yes, in the 1980s, there were there was a certain hope that the, the North would improve and um, you know growth rates would go up. If you look at, for example, Uttar Pradesh in the late 1980s, it was said you know that the sleeping giant is awakened for the first time. You know, industrial and agricultural output became almost very close to the national output. 
But you see, politics intervene. The 1990s were a period of identity politics with the SP and the BSP and competitive populism. So in the North, politics, uh, which, uh, you know, assertion by both uh, the backward class and the Dalits, their aspirations, etc., all came in and identity politics led to short-term governments with very little long-term policies. And uh, so if you, you know, a state like Uttar Pradesh was in a death trap by the end of the 1980s and in the early 1990s, it had to be rescued by the World Bank. So the, uh, we, we find that in the 1990s, these states did not uh, make a move forward. It is some of the smaller states like Goa, Martin Pradesh, etc., which have moved forward. Uh, even some parts of Bihar have improved after its division. So maybe smaller states is the answer. Maybe UP and big, big states need to be divided. Uh, but that's a different story altogether. When we come to um, the present, as I've already said, the differences between the two are widening in terms of uh, economics. Uh, but then there are differences between the various states where the South is concerned. The North-South divide is also worsening politically and culturally due to the attempt to impose Hindi on the South, persisting cultural differences and the existence of strong lower caste movement-based parties such as the DMK and smaller Dalit parties such as the Dalit Panthers. You see, which um, which have you know, which view the BJP as an upper caste party. Parties such as the DMK have been very active in uh, looking after the backward caste and to some extent the Dalits in terms of their human development, in terms of education, in terms of health, and so on. The uh, opportunities that are on offer are much higher in all the states of the South. Having said that, and, and also you see, if you look at Karnataka, the Congress is not the same all over the country. It's regionalized. For example, in the South, Congress leaders are grounded in the local social structure. For example, in Karnataka, you have Siddharamaya, you have Malikarjan Kharge, B.K. Kumar, who represent the Lingayat, Dalit, and Bokaliga social groups and are capable of taking up local problems and uh, providing you know, local leadership as such. So, therefore, the cultural differences are bound to persist and will take a long time between, uh, you know, the North and the South, um, you know, the differences uh, sort of narrow down. Also, there is the um, issue of if there was delimitation that was done again where parliamentary constituencies are concerned, which is on hold, uh, you know, the South would have much fewer seats in parliament. And that could cause a great deal of unhappiness where the southern states are turned as such. Yes, uh, so ma'am, I, are, I will uh, intervene here because this is delimitation is an issue we want to take it, uh, uh, we want to have a larger debate on. We have roughly seven minutes left. I would uh, urge both of you to take three minutes each and answer this question. Uh, how, the how does religion play, uh, say, in South versus North? Uh, Ma'am, can you speak on this first, followed by uh, Professor Kailash? Um, religion does play an important role all over the country, but in the South, um, I would say that Brahminical Hinduism is no longer that important. The number of Brahmins in South India are much smaller than in many of the states than in the North. So I would say that other forms uh, and you know the kind of religion that is pursued by 
let's say backward class, the smaller little cultures which are there in Tamil Nadu and Karnataka, etc., all play a very important role. So, whereas in the north, you find that Brahminical Hinduism is far more important. In fact, here there is there are many studies which point out that the peripheral areas of India, whether it's Punjab, Orissa, uh, Bengal, the deep south, and so on, they are very different from uh, the Hindi heartland, where the, where Brahminical Hinduism still is, uh, you know, persists in a very strong form. And if you look at the work of uh, N.C. Henry, for example, that it was in the heartland that this was developed, and from here it sort of spread to the south. It did spread to all parts of the country, but social movements in the south, such as the self-respect movement, etc., have brought a lot of change. So I think there are uh, major differences in the way in which religion is pursued in the north and it is pursued in the south. And that I think also is a part of the cultural structures of, of these states and also a part of the answer to your question of, of the role that Hindutva plays in the north and in the south. Yeah, uh, Professor Kalash, do you want to come in? And how much religion uh, how much political currency does religion hold? Okay. So I'll uh, go back to something which Professor Pai mentioned earlier and also add to something. and say that uh, religion in the two regions, that is in the south and the north, again, it depends on how political parties sort of use them. There's a great difference. And one, I think if you look at the literature on the north, they would say that the Hindu-Muslim cleavage has been what Varshini calls the master narrative or master cleavage. And I think this has to do with the uh, partition and the riots that followed. And that partition and the impact that it had in the north was very different from what happened in the south. So I think the space for religion in the south in terms of that is very different. The, the second issue is that I think religion in the in south you see, it's more, uh, I think there is a little more, there's more, it's more accommodative, that is people there in terms of cultural and historical reasons, people are more accommodative of differences. And this, I think a good example of this is to maybe just compare, say, BJP, old BJP leaders in the South as compared to, say, the old BJP leaders in the North. So the old BJP leaders in the South, say, for example, let's say an O Raj Gopal in Kerala or an Yadurapa in um, Karnataka are actually very different from the more newer BJP leaders that are coming up in these states. So the older leaders seem to have sort of accepted the differences and that different religions could coexist and different religions have their own practices, etc. Whereas in the north, it was not like that. There was this dif that difference you see in terms of leadership. So I think uh, in the South, because of the, the religions of uh, people being more accommodative of differences as compared to the North, I think the scope for religion being used in the South for political mobilization is much lesser compared to the North. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Kailash, Professor Pai. I am really uh, appalled that we don't have enough time and this is a topic uh, uh, which requires a far more expansive discussion. Um, but I guess uh, on delimitation and other issues that are upcoming, we will have another uh, debate with both of you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.